Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show continues our specialty episodes where we take Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guests a very simple question. What is their choice for Hemingway's one true sentence? And then, as Hemingway writes, we go on from there. This series of shows will be collected into a book called One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, to be published by Godin in July 2022, and already available for pre-order. Today's guest is a writer at The Atlantic and the author or co-author of 10 books, three of them New York Times bestsellers. In 2001 to 2002, he was a special assistant and speechwriter to President George W. Bush. Welcome, David Frum. David, what is your one true sentence and why? It's the last sentence from A Farewell to Arms. After a while, I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. So what does that sentence mean to you? I am returning to Hemingway. I read a lot of Hemingway when I was young. I then um, fell quite out of love with him when I was a little less young. And then uh, recently, I, I, have this, I consume fiction these days, mostly in the form of audiobooks. I, I, I read nonfiction and I listen to uh, fiction. I try to have one of each. And I've um, and I, I thought to give Hemingway another chance, and I, I started with a, a farewell to arms. Um, and if you were to that sentence at the end of the book, that is the last sentence of probably thousands of pieces of modern literature, hundreds of movies. Um, if you were to see it in a story today, you would throw it across the room and say, "Oh my God." The, the, the hero, all passion spent, the hero, you know, nature cooperating, the hero leaves the hospital and love to, but this is 1929 and Hemingway is inventing this new mode of expression that is going to become the default language of cinema, of, of film noir, of, of, um, you know, you can, you, uh, that, that's a, that's a perfect sentence to end, um, uh, uh one of, um, Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe stories. And um, that what you are seeing here is the invention of literary modernism, not in its highest forms. That's done before the First World War by um, by people like um, like like Joyce and, and, and Wolf and others. But in that kind of post-World War I, affectless, uh, the horrors of the world are too much for ordinary speech, that new way of communicating um, I don't know that Hemingway literally invents it, but he's the man who sends it into, in, into our popular culture in such a way that I, you know, years after reading it for the first time as a boy, as a young man and returning to it, I could be fed up with it because it is so commonplace. It is so the default way of writing stories. That you think, you know, who needs to, who needs to be reminded of the guy who did it first? I not normally in the habit of this, but I'm going to quote a tweet uh, from you. Uh, back to you, back to you. You write on February 22nd, when you haven't read Hemingway in a while, somehow the parodies and pastiches overtake the reality. After a long lapse, I've returned to a farewell to arms. 
Its austere modernism is as exciting and powerful as ever. The parodies are overwhelmed and banished. So it's really interesting. And as you mentioned in your first explanation that you've returned to him. So what was Hemingway to you as a young reader and why did you return to him? As a young reader, um, if I can be a little harsh on myself at the time, uh, the flatness of language is attractive because you haven't lived that much and you haven't suffered that much and you don't actually have that much to say. And so saying very little is a way of writing around the fact that you don't have that much to say. Um, and so uh, to encounter a writer like Hemingway, who had been through so much, um, you know, and even at a fairly early age and had been through the First World War and had been so badly wounded, um, uh, had gone through ide per, uh, political and ideological changes. Um, he, he didn't say much because there was too much to speak. And so you can find in his exhausted tone um, a solution to your own attempts to write with what's the opposite of exhausted, um, you know, un, you know, un, underused tone. You don't, you, you haven't, you don't have the emotional impetus in the first place. Um, and he was, uh, you know, I, I had consumed a lot as a uh, young man of the older part of the literary tradition, the romantics, um, you know, the romantic poets, the Rupert Brooks. And so, you know, I, I had my own reaction that a lot of people had the first time around back in the 1920s of saying, I appreciate the purgation of excess that is happening here. Now, he can overdo it. Um, I mean, the uh, the aggressively simplified vocabulary to the point where words are re repeat, not only words, but phrases are repeated so often. Um, I have to say, I don't think um, he's beyond criticism. I mean, I can, I, as I read or listened to Farewell to Arms, I can, you know, you could, you could mix it up a little bit. You could, you, you could allow yourself a palette of eight or nine adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of in the reins, aren't there? Are yeah, there? and and there's a lot of uh, sweet and um, fine and um, grand, grand. Um, and what's also about that that is a little telling is the grand, especially, is not really American English. It's much more British English. And even in the 1920s, I think that was true. And so I I, I would have, if he if I'd been there to advise him, I'd say a few more adjectives and omit the ones that are less American. David, with all of this in mind, the conceit is the one true sentence uh, that was the motivation for our discussion today. Did that have any application to you as a journalist or as as a writer of your own? Did you do you ever um, think along those terms of of writing one true sentence and then allowing that either to be the impetus or inspiration for the entire work? Well, uh, yes, in both a a negative and a positive sense. So in the, in the positive sense, um, when I'm writing something um, of heft, that I, mean, uh, I my one of my methods is I try to write the first sentence, and then I try to like write the last sentence. And sometimes I even write the last sentence first, but I never write the last sentence more than second, because and and that's partly a way of knowing I have to get from here to there, um, but that's also part way of um, of uh, just making sure that where you're going is present with every step. Um, and, you know, I just, I just finished an article for The Atlantic that will end up at 8,000 words, but that 
started much longer and easily there was sufficient material to, to make it much longer. And it covered a, a vast array of six months of reporting and um, a lot of different points on a lot of different subjects. And so to have that destination always in view, to know exactly where you're going um, uh, is, is helpful. Um, where I think there's a negative admonition is um, I am a strong believer in uh the caution, I forget who's the original author of it, and maybe I've seen it attributed to many people. Um, but whenever read over your writing, and whenever you see anything that seems to you especially good, take it out. And there are, I, I won't name names here, but I can think of people who I, I imagine them typing a sentence and then kissing their fingers. Hey, <laughs> <Paid them. laughs> too beautiful for this world. But you know, that stuff, that take it out. Does your final point ever change? At, during yeah. the course of writing. Yeah. Yes, that will happen. Um, uh, that will happen sometimes, but less often than you might think, because usually um, my writing process, um, my own writing process, and, and this is just journalism we're talking about, but is one where I don't really start writing until I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to say. Um, so I've, um, and even though I work through a lot of, I, I revise endlessly. Um, it's, it, it, I'm not, one of my pieces of advice to people who, if they, um, find themselves struggling is the keyboard can be a dangerous place to do your thinking. Um, and it it can, you can get so tangled and miserable that you actually end up then despairing of the project prematurely. And whereas if you go for a walk or take, take three days away from it, you find, and do, and just think, then you find that the keyboard becomes a much more hospitable place. Back after this. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Let's consider the same question about the one true sentence uh, with respect to speech writing. Yeah. Is there, did you find that to be a, a different writing process at, at that yeah. point? Well, with the speech writing, I was extra militant about eliminating the beautiful words. Um, you know, what will happen in my speech writing days is wherever you went, there would be, there would be somebody who would have, who would have a speech say, the president needs to say this. It'll change everything. And uh, it would usually be kind of either either sub Churchillian or sub Aaron Sorkin. Um, you know, in, in, in the Aaron Sorkin movie, here's what happens: the president's in a jam, some er- terrible problem. Um, er- the situation seems hopeless, dark night of the soul. Uh, screenwriter say, and then the president decides the answer is he's going to give a speech, and he strides to the microphone in the uh, um, and and there he talks, begins to talk. Camera cuts to. Um, st- Sturdy working men um, at the assembly line, uh, women <laughs> chopping carrots as they cook for their families, farmers bringing in the harvest. And one by one, they gradually slow in their work. And the music picks up. And and you know, a strong man lets slip one gentle tear. And, and, and you think, <laughs> never, no one's listening. No one's listening. Right, and, right. and you need everything you write for in politics. You need to remember they're not listening. Um, 
And also, they've invented not only the television, they've invented the microphone. So if you are, I mean, what, what made Churchill, what made Churchill like seem like a man out of his time was he was someone whose habits of speaking had been developed before the microphone existed. Um, so, uh, where, where, um, political rhetoric had more in common with opera than anything else. Because literally you use the same part of the body as an opera singer would. Uh, you know, when, when, if you were to see William Jennings Bryan delivering the cross of gold speech, it would, um, he, he'd be, Imagine you're in that giant hall holding thousands of people. There's no microphone and um, there's maybe some artificial lighting, uh, but it's gas. Uh, so it's very flickery. And, and, and then there's this tiny figure and he is making gestures yeah. uh, that look absurd. And he's bending at the waist and he is speaking like this because otherwise he won't be heard at all. And, uh, you know, that, that you, you need to understand we've made the transition from opera and stage to cinema and television and the close-up shot. And so um, formal rhetoric just seems weird a lot of the time. It just is not the way people talk. Well, it, that's really interesting, David, particularly when we're talking about a farewell to arms. One of the most famous passages of a farewell to arms is when Frederick Henry decries abstractions like yes. sacrifice and glory. Right. Yeah. However, in your role as a wartime speechwriter, how did you negotiate the president's wish to be emotional mm -hmm. and to sort of lobby a cause versus what you just said, which is you can't be operatic yeah. in the 21st century? Speechwriting is very much like um, being a makeup artist. Uh, you are there to bring out what it, uh, lies underneath. And you also ultimately are working for a client. And, and uh, so, um, you know, it, it, in the most successful collaborations, there was a kind of mind meld, but the mind meld should be mostly the client melding with the mind of the person who was assisting and not the other way around. Um, and so, but my, uh, so Bush had, had, very grand noted uh, ideas of the dignity of the office of the majesty of the moment. And uh, there was a certain Churchillianism in the air and that, that was, would not to the extent I, anyone cared. That was not my advice. Um, I, I, I always thought his, his best moment, which was completely unscripted was the moment um, when he paid his visit to the world trade center, the ruins um, on I think September 14th, three days after 9-11. And, and he was joking with the emergency workers and someone tossed him a megaphone and, you know, I, the whole world will hear. And that was improvised. And that, that's modern American talk. And uh, that, that really, I think, works. And it also, it also has, it avoids this problem, which is a lot of the sort of the grand moments of the presidency, they can actually work in the moment when, when people are at a high pitch of emotion and a president goes out at a certain and uses that high flown language, it can temporarily work. But the Hemingway's warnings about um, modern war catch up with you. I think one of the things that is so um, transformative about what's happening in Ukraine, and this is not a first, but it's just the biggest, but this is the way the world is different, is we are all now seeing war the way it really is. There is, it's killing, it's hurting, it's smashing, it's wrecking, it's raping, it's stealing, you know? Um, and sometimes the killing and the hurting goes without the stealing and is done for good causes. And then it, it, it acquires a moral, but there's, 
you know, that, that high flown language does not belong in connection with this activity. How would you assess Zelensky's rhetoric in describing his own war experience? Yeah. Well, Zelensky has a, I mean, I don't speak his language, so I'm dependent on the English language translations, or sometimes he speaks in English. But one of his techniques, and he is a very sophisticated communicator, is to build a whole speech around one word. And the two examples that are present in mind, the, the very first time we all got to know him as the figure he is, is when he uh, did that short speech based on the Ukrainian word for here, tut. Um, and he said, I, you know, uh, the, the speaker, the leader of the majority is here, and so-and-so is here, and I, and of course the president is here, and toot, 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 toot. Um, and then he gave a speech in English with a video in which he uh, play, did the play, uh, same play on the word was, and how the word was in Ukrainian um, now has new, two Ukrainians now has this new resonance. You know, this was my home, this was my job. Uh, this was my town. This was my dog. And then he does, and then he does that interesting thing, which is you dial down the emotion. This was my dog. So like you, you go from powerful things, home, job, to something that's a little less dog. And then you go to, this was my father. This was my child. And then you end on that. And um, I, I, I understand he speaks that way in other occasions, um, but he is not someone who's doing Look, and, and Churchill's most famous quotations are not so high flown. Some chicken, some neck. Um, so you have to be, you have to be real careful. And so when those people give you those, those, those speeches they've proposed, they are imagining, they're not really looking. And I think one of the things that has always helped me as a resident, I do a lot of speaking myself. And, um, and, and I, and I've had to be in rooms and have that sense of, are you holding the room or not? And, and you hold it with human engagement. David, you write speeches differently, obviously, when you're going to deliver it yourself versus for President Bush versus for any other politician or person that you're, that you're writing for. You're adapting the vocabulary and syntax, et cetera. When I've done it, and I've done it for politicians in this country and in my native Canada and in Britain, um, it, you start by just watching them a lot. Because it, it does no good to make them not themselves. Um, that, that always catches up with you. And I think that's the thing that, um, you know, that, that is there in, in Hemingway is that, um, like the, the, uh, this is one of his limits, by the way, as is he, his, his most memorable characters are always extension of the image he had of himself. Um, and so that the, the protagonists are always Hemingway-esque and the idea, and he's never, uh, uh, I mean, he does some things good with subordinate characters, but he doesn't have that kind of imagined richness of the world of so Charles Dickens. He's, he's a, it's a very, uh, this way he's a modernist too. It's very spare and with a lot, a lot of ornament missing. Um, and that's partly serious artistic purpose. It may also reflect authentic artistic limits. I mean, that, that, that it, he just not, may not have been able to do uh, what a Charles Dickens could do, which is conjure entire galaxies of human beings out of nothing. No, that's fair. Um, the last thing, David, I'd ask you to think about in lines of what we've been talking about with Hemingway. So when Hemingway says, I was always embarrassed by the words uh, glory and sacrifice, et cetera, um, and then we think about something like the Gettysburg Address. Mm -hmm. Would the Gettysburg Address and the language that Lincoln used, would that be resonant in the 21st century? Um, 
Lincoln is a proto-modernist in this way, yes. Um, so when Lincoln speaks high, he does so in language that comes from the Bible. The, the one book that he could count on everyone in his audience really to know. So the, the four score and seven years ago, the reason you say that instead of 87 years ago was because um, how old are, when, when they do the book of Genesis, they tell you how old everybody is. They, they measured the years in scores. And so even though that's probably not the way an American of the 1860s would have spoken, it was so familiar to them with the book they read probably every day and certainly once a week that it didn't seem strange or arbitrary. It seemed actually, it would seem gross to speak of the country as, as 87 because that, that, you know, it, it's more like, you know, one of the patriarchs and it is like a person, you know, um, the part of the Lincoln speech that would be uh cause of shock is he spoke so true. I mean, because we, the words are so familiar and, we, and children memorize them, the sheer horrifying audacity, uh, the second inaugural address, which has been called the most terrifying state paper in American history. When the president of the United States taking the oath of office for the second time, um, weeks away from victory in the most terrible war in the country's history. Um, and one in which, which with this huge task of reconstruction and the temptation, obviously, to impose all the costs on the beaten party. And then he says in the middle of this thing, if it turns out this war is going to last even longer than it looks like here in March of 1865, to the point where um, we l lose all the nation's money and we have even more bloodshed, the only thing we can say to that is we deserve it. Can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine George Bush standing up after 9-11 saying, you know, I'm looking at this horror, and all I can say is we brought this on ourselves. I mean. <laughs> the courage of that is outrageous. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And, and, and in a way, one of the reasons he made it a little high-flown is if he stated it, what he was saying was so, that it, it was so arresting. It's so true. Um, it's so self-indicting. You have to put a little... Um, cushion on it so that people can even absorb because if you just said it to them any plainer than the way he said it, we, we deserve this. Yeah. My son, my husband, my brother, my father, yeah. we deserve this. Exactly. Yeah. David, uh, what brought you back to Hemingway in, in, when you said that, that you're, you just decided to pick him up again, once again, what, what inspired it? Uh, this is kind of going to be kind of an embarrassing answer because uh, I should have a better, uh, like a less um, first world problems answer. I went skiing in the Dolomite Mountains. Oh. <laughs> so, so I was I was in the place where Farewell to Arms is set, and and um, when you ski there, the scars of the First World War are are still present. Um, and there's a, there's a museum that uh, commemorates it. And, and you, you're watching this. And I, I read through my life about the Italians fighting the Austrians in the mountains. I had never understood what a completely lunatic project. I mean, they, 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 I was, okay, the mountains, like the Appalachians, right? No, like the Dolomites. And then you see where the force are. Why would anybody do this? This is nuts. Um, but they did it at a horrifying cost and and Hemingway was there and, and saw it and I saw the, the you know the, the rivers where um, the breakthroughs came and one of the things that what I, I said some critical things I'm going to say one thing that is just um, I thought the, the, and this is the modernist brilliance of it 
so Frederick Henry, the protagonist, takes part in the retreat from Caporetto, which is one of the great disasters in Italian military history, one of the great disasters for the Allies in the First World War. How do you describe this? And the answer is you, just, you talk, talk about one truck getting lost. And you give the, um, the terror and the pathos, the, the bloodshed, because there is bloodshed on that retreat, the, the randomness of the bloodshed. Um, and in that one truck's journey, you get a sense of what the chaos of this, and, and there are little glimpses of things happening over on the next road and the, the next bridge, but he makes you feel like what, what it would be like in a way that a, a big set piece might give you more information, but less feeling about it. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, Frederick wouldn't be watching CNN getting the grand scope of it. It would just be how he felt at that moment. That's a great point. David, would you mind reading your sentence one more time for us? After a while, I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. David Frum, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the hospitality. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on onetruepod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Please also visit us on patreon.com slash one true podcast for one true book club, our monthly book club, where we read along with the young Ernest Hemingway. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,